I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, we are back. Uh, episode three of the season 2.5, where we're uh, looking at the kind of diving deeper on these countercultural conviction sermons. Uh, Seth, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. This uh, podcasting every single week with you, you know, I could do this for at least three more weeks, probably. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. It is nice to see you, though, each uh, Tuesday morning as we record. I mean, this gets released. Uh, I guess we're letting people in on the secret. It comes out on Thursday, but we're recording it on Tuesday. If you want to come be creepy and look in a window, room 203 at 8.50 a.m., yeah. There you go. That sounds pretty creepy. So, uh, yeah, so what we're doing is just kind of uh, going deeper, going behind the scenes, lifting the hood a little bit, talking somewhat about maybe things that we've left out of the sermon, um, other times just sort of how does this apply in deeper ways. And so uh, we're, uh, you know, kind of free-flowing a little bit on this. We don't have this scripted out exactly, but I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it too. You know, I've, I've been a part of this church about five years now, and I think I've heard you... Uh, explicitly address the topic of sex a handful of times. You know, it's it's not a weekly thing or a monthly thing, but it does feel like when you pick a book of the Bible, sexual morality or sex and its various um, identities that go with it, practices that go with it, tends to come up at least a handful of times a year. I'm curious, as you were approaching this time teaching about sex, it's not your first rodeo on this topic. Uh, how have you approached it in the past and how does that shape the way you approached it this time? Yeah, it's a um, good question. I, I don't know that I've ever preached on it as like a topic, mm. you know, where it's like you're kind of inherently trying to cover a sort of breadth. It's typically been around a certain thing. So uh, I think in 2013, 2014, somewhere in there, we preached through Romans and we did two weeks on um, the passage in Romans 1 related to homosexuality. We did the first week was kind of a theology of homosexuality. What does the Bible and the, you know, in, ge- in general, but Romans 1 in particular, teach about it? And then the second week was kind of how, how should we approach the issue? And that was like pre-Obergefell, pre-legalization of same-sex marriage, um, where kind of like all of the confusion and questions and things that are happening now related to gender identity, it felt like that's what was going on related to especially homosexuality, which is just kind of crazy that that was like... Seven or eight years ago. Yeah, it was like five minutes ago in terms of world history time. Yeah, so um, I remember talking about that. Um, I preached through the Sermon on the Mount, um, and I'm pretty sure, I I don't recall specifically, but I'm pretty sure we would have talked about the passage where Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um, I've preached on marriage a number of times. I remember in Colossians and in Ephesians and uh, probably in some other places, and that inherently sort of touches on sex. Um, when we preached through Malachi at the beginning of 2020, I preached a message, um, related to abuse. And I remember in that message kind of going pretty hard after pornography and, uh, as one of the different ways that men are kind of mistreating wives in particular. So those are kind of some of the different slices. I, you, you may remember other parts, but this was kind of the first time it felt like, Hey, let's give a whole kind of thematic message on sex and sexuality, which inherently felt like more like a scattershot kind of message by design than kind of a rifle shot, you know, so. Yeah, I've heard it said that sometimes preaching is about proving it. Sometimes preaching is about showing it. Mm. And it felt like this past Sunday was more about showing it. You're trying to help people see the beauty of the Christian sexual ethic. If people were maybe skeptics, 
in terms of they didn't really agree with what the Bible says. It right. seemed like more you weren't trying to prove it as much as you're trying to show the beauty of it. it yeah. Does that does that capture some of like your approach and oh, do, you, yeah. do you feel like that happened and how did how did you decide that go that angle? Well that's definitely been that was definitely my desire and kind of has been for a while. So probably, I don't know, three or four years ago we invited Sam Alberry, who um he preached here and he did a message on that I, I specifically said, Hey, would you talk about why the Christian sexual ethic is beautiful. And that's a really interesting message coming from Sam because he talked about how when he was, I think, 18 years old, he came to two unquestionable realities. The first one was that he loved Jesus and Jesus was the Lord of his life. And the second was he was basically only attracted to men. And so he talked and shares his story about how that, how he navigated that. And, um, and so, I, yeah, I've just sensed over these last years, even as we kind of go from 2013 to now, back then the question was, well, what's the Bible say about this? Um, and that's still an open question. I mean, to some people, I don't think it's a very difficult question. There's been lots of good scholarly work done that I think overwhelmingly proves what the Bible says, specifically related to, related to homosexuality. Um, but people still try to kind of, you know, I would say do kind of gymnastics around that and make the Bible say something it doesn't and probably justify their desires and lifestyle. If, if someone has someone like that in their life who yeah. is at least seeing this through the lens of intellectual skepticism, yeah, you know, how do we know that what we think the Bible says is what the Bible says? That kind of, yeah, is Romans 1 really talking about what we think it's talking about? Right. Is there a recommended place you'd send those folks? Yeah, I mean, I would say kind of at a popular level, I would say Sam Albury's book is God Anti-Gay is a really good, helpful book. And especially coming from his story. Um, if there was someone that would be kind of predisposed to thinking that God's anti-gay, it would be someone who is only attracted to someone of the same sex. So I think that's a good book. Uh, the The most in-depth book that I read uh, back in the Romans days was um, by Robert Gagnon. Um, and it's, I think called a theology of homosexuality or, uh, I forget exact, the exact title. You could go find it on Amazon, but it's a big, thick book. And what I especially appreciate about him is he's at a more liberal seminary and isn't by any means kind of down the line a kind of conservative, and yet he's very much going at this issue, just looking at it historically and biblically and going, you know, overwhelmingly the biblical account is negative toward um, the different kind of homosexuality practices of the ancient world and thus of today as well. So... But anyway, all that to say, I feel like that was that that was the question at one point is well, what's true about this, and that's still an important question. But I do think a more relevant question is: is the Christian sexual ethic beautiful? Is it compelling? Is it something I want? Do I want it to be true? Because I think that's a lot of. I mean, a lot of the reasons why people go, "Well, it's not true," isn't because it's not true. It's because they don't want it to be true. And so, yeah. So in in having Sam come speak. In my sermon this week, that's what I was really trying to do. And that's where I felt so helped by Josh Butler. Um, and I gave him credit in the sermon. And, you know, you and me and him have had lots of conversations and we'll have more conversations. But he, he just has been very helpful in kind of that macro, beautiful view of, of how a Christian view of sex is a window into creation and a window into the diversity and union and all the stuff we talked about. So um, I felt like, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't have come up with that stuff on my own. And so I was really thankful for that input. I'm curious. There was a point in the sermon where you're quoting Ray Ortland, mm -hmm. Ray Ortland Jr. To be specific, you know, right? Uh, he's a old pastor guy that you just hear him read something and you 
somehow fall more in love with Jesus. But yeah. you 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 teared up reading his quote, mm-hmm. at least at the nine o'clock service, mm-hmm. and that felt emblematic of a bit of a tone difference. Because when you talked about pornography back when you were talking about abuse mm-hmm. or marital treachery, there was more of a you're harming your wives, knock it off, yeah, you idiots. Sure. Whereas this tone, it seemed like you were almost weeping over the way that God treats sexual sinners with kindness. Yeah. Uh, how much of that was an in the moment, that's just what the Spirit was doing in you, versus a, you decided on a different tone ahead of time? Uh, talk yeah. us through that. Well, the the emotion attached to reading that quote was just in the moment. Um, kind of like you said last week, you don't plan to cry unless you're a psychopath (laughs) as a preacher. So that just, that just happened. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the, the, the main, like, okay, here's a new book I'm reading in preparation for this message was, was Orland's book, uh, the death of porn, which has just come out and it's wonderful. I mean, it's like a hundred pages long. So it's like a perfect length for most of us guys to read. Most books should be less than a hundred pages. Yeah. It's really good. And as you said, he's an older guy. He's in his seventies, and he kind of writes it. Each each chapter is a letter that starts, "Dear son." So he's uh, he's treating the reader like he's a kind of father in the faith, and you're a son in the faith. And here's what he wants for you. And I've just loved Ray's tone about so many different things, and his graciousness, and his mercy. And so I really picked up that book largely because I went like, I want to hear how he talks about this, and. Um, what I appreciated was he doesn't pull punches in the book. I mean, there's a spot in one chapter where he says, you know, you, you should quit saying, I'm just sort of struggling with porn. And what you should say is, I am choosing to do things that harm women made in the image of God. I am choosing to side with Satan today. That's what I'm doing. Like, and so he's, he's not pulling punches. But where he starts is by going, hey, you're royalty in Christ and you're made in the image of God and you have greatness in you and not in a cheap kind of rah, rah, you know, just, you know, be the best you, but in a way that's theological and warm and biblical and winsome and just really compelling. And so, yeah, I was moved by that. And, you know, after the the sermon you mentioned on Malachi, um, where I went hard at, at, at the men, especially, I did get one email from someone that said, um, you know, hey, I've I've really struggled with pornography and for you to just get up and sort of call me and other people a pervert actually like doesn't help. Like a lot of my, as I've worked with this guy was writing, as I've worked with a counselor and as I've sort of been trying to fight this over the years, I've realized a lot of the reasons I go to pornography has to do with shame. And it felt like you were just sort of shaming me again. And I'm in the battle and I'm working on it. But just so you know, I don't think that approach probably has the kind of is going to bear the kind of fruit that you he's kind of going to look i know i'm a pervert and i still am trapped yeah that's not right. t- telling me that i i'm terrible when i know i'm running the shame cycle sure doesn't really help me yeah and so um i don't know that i would have gone back and done that message differently in that what i was really trying to say was like hey the treachery against women at marriage is a really serious deal it makes god really mad he hates it and I wanted to preach that message with that kind of a tone. So I don't know that I would go rewire that. And yet I was thinking about that and going, yeah, you know what? I think even in my own, I mean, um, gender identity is not part of my story and homosexuality is not part of my story, but pornography is part of my story. And, um, and thinking, okay, what, what is it that sets me free and others free? And it generally is not the kind of piling on of guilt and shame 
it usually is kind of calling you to something more compelling and beautiful. So, so yeah, to whatever degree you notice the shift in that tone, that was on purpose. And, um, and I think for this message, it was appropriate. Yeah. That goes back to seeing even the way that Satan successfully tempts Eve in the garden is by convincing her that God withheld good things from her. And so there is like that real fear of missing out that drives a lot of sin. That's Mm -hmm. just, and it's not the question of, is God really God? Is, is God true? But that is God good. And does he withhold good from me? Yeah. And I think that that, especially just that Genesis three story reveals that questioning the goodness of God motivates Mm -hmm. our sin a lot more than just questioning the authority of God. Yeah. And I'm just curious what type of feedback you've gotten from the sermon has, have people reached out who are frustrated or upset or encouraged? Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten a great deal of feedback either way. I mean, I've gotten a few, uh, a few comments and things from a few folks that said, thank you very much. That was really helpful. Uh, somebody told me this morning, they said, you know, uh, a family member of theirs was really helped by it. Um, I haven't gotten the pushback. Um, and that may still come or I may not get it. I mean, I, I don't get a ton of, I don't get a lot of feedback, period. Yeah. Um, and, uh, which I don't necessarily mind, you know, uh, but, but no, I haven't gotten a lot of that. It was interesting though, even just in the, like this was a Sunday morning. I was just feeling a great deal of condemnation and accusation from the enemy in my own heart. And so even some of probably the emotion of that, of me reading that quote was, reading it for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the last few weeks I've just been, as I've prepared this sermon, um, a number of other things that have happened kind of in life have just kind of reminded me of sin in my story and, uh, past sin, current sin, and, you know, getting up and preaching, not about just this one sin that I don't struggle at all with, but this kind of call for a a different sort of approach to sexuality as a whole just exposed all of my, all of my sin and all my weaknesses to me. And so on one hand, that's really good because you get to be a lead repenter and you get to go in the weakness, in your own weakness so that Christ can be strong. On the other hand, I was just feeling kind of the flip side of that, which is the enemy, you know, what he likes to do is tempt you. And then once you do it, then he condemns you for it. And so, um, yeah, so it was interesting. I, you know, I had a moment actually kind of a few minutes before the sermon or before the service where I uh, went in the back, you know, use a restroom or something. And a couple of our pastors were back there and I just said, hey, guys, will you pray for me? And just for them to pray for me. And then, then to be able to go, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this in the strength you supply. And um, I'm one of the guys had prayed something in the effect of like, you know, Lord, remind Luke that the reason he's preaching is not because of his holiness, but because of yours. And it was like, yes, I needed to hear that. So, um, so yeah, I think that made a difference too. That's great. Thanks for sharing all that. I thought one of the more helpful parts of the sermon in terms of explaining the why behind the Christian sexual ethic was this idea that sexual morality either violates the diversity side of sexuality or it violates the unity side mm-hmm. of sexuality. You know, polyamory, adultery, pornography all violate the unity. You're no longer... right. You, like going to one person, sure. your spouse and homosexuality among other things might violate the diversity side of that. I'm curious. So 
maybe less so Redemption Gateway, which tends to be a little more conservative, but some of the other congregations, I had a couple friends from other congregations texting me who were wrestling with shepherding their small groups, and someone mm-hmm. said, how do you respond to this accusation that the Christian, like the, the biblical view of sexuality, it actually harms and actively harms queer people? How do you, how do you shepherd through that? And I'm curious as as you're teaching yeah. how diversity violates a sexual ethic, I'm sure you have that in mind. That kind of that pushback floating around. It's pretty popular in the media. Pretty popular in a lot of secular settings. How do you how do you walk through that? How do you how do you shepherd folks through that? Yeah, well, I mean the the first thing I think of is like I kind of want to know. Well, what do you mean by harm? I feel like harm is one of those words that has broadened. Um. But there's no question that people dealing with uh, same-sex attraction, people that are in homosexual lifestyles, all the way to, like, gender fluidity and uh, gender identity. I mean, the suicide rates are higher. The um, There's lots of self-hatred. There's lots of, I'd change this if I could. I wish I could do this. I've tried to change, and I don't feel like I can. And so there's a, there's definitely significant kind of shame cycles attached there. And so my guess is that someone who would say that is saying like, hey, when you when you say that this is a sin, you're contributing to that shame cycle. You're making it where people would be more likely to hate themselves, more likely to harm themselves, more likely to, um, you know, engage in dangerous behaviors. Um, and uh, and so um, I get I understand that perspective. I I guess I mean I I I get why someone would say that. Um, and yet I feel like what what I was, and this is the part that I still feel the most like, ah, I hope I did this well, but I'm not sure I did in my sermon, is to go, I don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. And I don't want to um, cause people to hurt from things that I say that aren't from God's word and with God's heart. But I also feel like I believe the Bible where it says that wounds from a friend can be trusted and um, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so I feel like we do need to try to embody that. I think where we lose the grace and where we speak it, where it's the truth of God's word, but not with God's heart, there is more potential that we're harming people and hurting people. Um, but mostly I think that, that um, a lot of that question is a desire to just get you to stop saying the truth about what God says. And I just feel like we don't have that choice. God said it. I didn't say it. Um, and he said it a number of times and he said it consistently. And so, um, I want to try to do it in a way that's not offensive, but I can't control whether the words offend. So that's my approach. I'd be curious what, what your take on that is. Yeah. I think one of the like rubber meets the road questions that folks get that I get at the gym that I get in coffee shops, people find out you go to a church or particularly find out I'm a pastor and I'm sure our high school students get it, our middle school students get it, our college students get it. Uh, it's pretty common is, is this kind of vague, but everyone knows that you mean questions. Well, do you all accept everybody? Right. Uh, or, or do you affirm everybody? And those two words, accept and affirm, are pretty tough because it's accept. When even those, I feel like those are pretty different in my mind. Yeah. People might use them more interchangeably. Yeah, when people say, do you accept everyone? What they're asking is, uh, is do you affirm everyone? Sure. Whereas we would say that we're accepting but not affirming. 
Right. Like typically if a church is affirming, what that means is that they do same sex weddings or they affirm people in their, um, gender queer, uh, or type trans identities, things like that. Right. Whereas we'd say we, everyone is welcome here. Uh, and, but nobody is affirmed fully here. Zero percent right. of people, zero percent of people are a hundred percent affirmed, meaning everyone comes to the door with baggage, with sin, with predispositions, with unchristlikeness. And so everyone needs to be working to leave some of them behind. And that's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for the person who became a Christian five minutes ago. It's true for the person who became a Christian 55 years ago. Everyone is not affirmed. Like you can't read the scriptures and be affirmed fully. Sure. There are things that the scriptures affirm about you. You're made in the image of God, your royalty in Christ, your you are part of God's treasured possession. Uh, you are uh, full of dignity and value, and you have purpose, and you can be a culture maker, subdue, and have dominion. Right. Uh, so there are things about us that are affirmed, but nobody's affirmed 100%. And so even that idea of like actively doing harm, what I want, part of the question I ask is, if someone was wrong in their view of themselves, how could a good friend come alongside them mm. and help them find a healthier view? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I, I, I'm nervous for our, like the folks my age and younger in particular in, in this type of area where there is like this view that I cannot be challenged. And if you challenge me on anything, then that's harm, that's not safe, uh, that's toxic. But part of becoming an adult, part of becoming a functioning human is to be challengeable, to have yourself on the table and to recognize that you're you're an in-process person and asking how would it be possible for someone to participate in being a part of someone's process of developing and, yeah. and growing. Because if, if that requires a full blank check affirmation of every aspect of the person, then nobody can help anybody grow ever. Sure. Well, and what's made it especially tough in this particular issue is the blending between what you might call a behavior or lifestyle and an identity Yes. Right. So people are not really saying, do you affirm the way I'm living? What they're saying is, do you affirm me? Because I am the way I'm living. Right. That, and we've talked about those identity issues a number of times over the course of episodes on this mm-hmm. podcast. But I feel like that's what has made it so hard is um, I think in a lot of our minds, we're saying, well, you're not your behavior. You're not your lifestyle. Um, that doesn't define you. Something else is your identity. But once you've collapsed those two categories, it really is hard for, you know, it's hard for someone to not hear, oh, well, you hate me. Yeah. And that goes far beyond LGBTQ issues. Like sure. Doing counseling here at the church, sitting with folks who are in marital tension or in premarital tension, that type of I am my sexual preferences is pretty ubiquitous among all people. Right. You have, especially what ends up tends to happen is you have um, women who will apply for counseling who are largely uh, feeling shame about themselves. And as you kind of press deeper, like the, the real seed or the real cause of it is a husband whose sexual preferences are dehumanizing Mm. or a husband whose sexual demands or expectations are not something that are worked out together in mutual submission, but it's largely a husband who learned about some things through his consumption. Yeah, through his consumption of pornography, 
developed, quote, sexual preferences, unquote, which is basically his FOMO from watching other people do stuff. And now he wants to act, make his wife act like a, the porn stars he's been watching. And she can't or won't. And so then she feels unsexy and mm. feels, I'm not a good wife. I can't please my husband. Or what will end up functionally happening is the husbands get all pouty and say, I feel like you don't, you're rejecting me. And they withdraw until the wife concedes after a number of days. And then the husband's not pouty anymore. Mm. And so the husband's emotional states tossed to and fro. And these are like conservative people who would confess a Christian sexual ethic. Yeah. But functionally, their view of themselves is, I am my sexual preferences. And when those are frustrated, literally or metaphorically, then I can't really be thriving as myself. Mm. And so that idea of importation of pornographic learned practices or preferences into marriage. And so so I'm saying that conservative Christian folks buy into a similar type of deal where your mood is tied up with uh, you getting what you want sexually. Yeah. Well, one of the things I shared in the sermon, you've kind of opened the door to this, but I I talked about these, uh, you know, we're going to fight for oneness in our marriages and there's some temptations to resist and I kind of listed out a number of them, but I'm curious from your perspective, I mean, over the last few years, I would bet people would be surprised to know how much counseling you've done. Um, That's not probably the lion's, I mean, that's not a major part of your ministry right now, but over the last few years, it's been a lot of it. Um, As you think about the families and marriages in Redemption Gateway, what are some of the temptations that what are the things that have come into those conversations for you quite a bit? So you just kind of mentioned one scenario. Are there other kind of common things that, that you go, man, this, this is more common than you'd think. And we got to watch out for this, right? I don't want to share this to be voyeuristic of like, yeah, boy, here's all the things that come in the counseling room. Ooh, let me listen in, yeah, but un- more to go, Hey, what do we have to watch out for? Unquestionably, I'd say there's three themes. The first one is just the biggest one and that's pornography use by husbands. Uh, and a lot of it's not tied, exclusively, but mostly. Yeah. By husbands. Yeah. 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 Well, part of it too is in my experience, I'm sitting with the husbands. Sure. So yeah. If a lady is struggling with pornography, they're meeting with Someone not yeah. anyone but, but me. So, yeah. uh, so in my experience, these are the three biggest ones is men using pornography. And a lot of it is related to, um, so the story will be something like this. There is a kind of an emotionally distant relationship with parents and then there's a discovery that surrounds excitement, and that excitement um, leads to some sort of connection. Either uh, I found my dad's pornography connection, mm. and so now I have a shared interest with my dad. And so rather than like having a healthy shared interest, now there's an unhealthy shared interest. And so this idea of now I'm connecting with my dad because his we have a thing together. Um, or otherwise, it's like a friend showed me pornography, and now we have a secret, which is that kind of trauma bond connection. And so somehow, like the initial exposure of pornography makes people feel connected to people like they haven't felt before. And it's not that people are consciously thinking that, oh, I have this connection with my dad now. Yes. But as you talk with them, you kind of uncover that that's sort of what happened. Yeah, it feels like home. I mean, for example, like my dad drank um, Guinness a lot growing up, you know, and I'm by a lot, I mean three or four times a week with dinner, he'd have a Guinness. Okay. And I remember when I turned 21 and had my first Guinness thinking like it tasted like home, mm-hmm. right? It, like there's something to the, uh, 
the way the roasted barley is in that that just felt familiar even though i never had it before it felt familiar interesting and for a lot of guys pornography feels like home feels like familiar because it's like the place where they've had a secret with someone Mm -hmm. you know the inside joke that you and i have something in common that other people don't have in common sometimes it's that sometimes it's um a lot of christian guys will literally just have a fear of missing out all their buddies are out there having sex and they're, you know, doing lame Christian stuff. And so there's kind of like this curiosity, what are other people doing that I'm not doing? And so there's this belief that God's withholds good. And so I'm going to find good. And there's kind of this deep seated resentment of God that God keeps good things for me. Mm. And if I wasn't a lame Christian, I'd be having fun like all these other people are having. There's an aspect of that. And so there's a lot that needs to be worked through and undone. And a lot of guys rarely is it just guys going hey i'm lustful and horny and so i do this sometimes usually there's a real sense of Mm self-hatred a real sense of harm Uh, it's a minority of times that i would say it's a lust problem period well one one thing i've been surprised over the last 12 years of our church is the number of times where um kind of counter to the typical stereotypes um you actually have a, a wife that wants more sex and that wants to be more sexually connected and a husband who's kind of withdrawn or not initiating, um, where like a couple would say, Hey, there's not much sex happening here, but it's not because she's withdrawn and frigid. It's because he kind of is, uh, have you bumped into that some as well? Yeah. Especially because that's another cycle of, of shame. Cause then guys don't feel like they fit the virile stereotype of like, the man who's has high testosterone and is excited to, um, you know, lead his wife yeah, sexually. And so there's like this shame impotence that is a cycle. And then you have a wife who feels undesired and you have a husband who struggles with this. I can't please my wife thing. And mm-hmm. so there's just a lot of layers that develop there. Yeah. And sometimes what'll happen is guys will have developed this habit of the only way they're able to, function sexually is through pornography. So then they have to bring pornography into their marital bed Mm. because they've so long associated orgasm with looking at a screen that now their flesh and blood wife's in front of them and they, they're not able to function. And so that's part of the, well, Hey honey, if you want me to be able to do what you're asking me to do, I need to have the supplement. Right. And so that it creates another layer of dysfunction and, and problem. Well, then the opposite you've, you've told me before happens sometimes. And I mentioned this in the sermon. I wonder how many people are like, what? <laughs> but you've mentioned like people who have s- sex frequently, but have really not much otherwise intimacy in their marriage. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, they'll have sex nearly every day, but it's very kind of almost whether transactional or just kind of like the kind of base pleasure of it, but it's not connecting them. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's not a thing I've heard much about, but that's interesting. Yeah. There's a handful of folks who have virtually zero emotional connection, but they just use each other's bodies as stress relief devices and they both feel used, but they both don't know how to not manage their stress. Otherwise they're like, well, getting sins a drunk, but having sex isn't, so I'd rather do this than, yeah. so, so just this, again, it's like the, you're bypassing the emotional connection for the physical connection. Yeah. And it's basically a uh, recurring prostitute situation and they're both just using each other 
in exchange for goods and services, even though there's not really, it's not fostering oneness. It's just kicking the can down the road on, it's easier to have sex with each other than to talk to each other. And so that, that's rarer or more rare. I don't know if the grammatically sure, correct way right. of saying that is, but that's just what I've been surprised by is just people who really love Jesus, their inability to handle emotional intimacy hmm. is pretty, um, I think we'd be surprised at how ex- exposing that is. Uh, well, it's interesting though, because I, I mean, maybe we'd be surprised, but maybe we wouldn't. I mean, I just, I, I'm sitting here in this conversation and my heart's just breaking for us because I feel like, um, I think what, I think what we're talking about here is not like, you know what, 90% of the church is just has this every, uh, every week together is mountaintops and sunsets and beaches. And, uh, you know, I can imagine someone, uh, yeah, anyway, I just like, it's not like that's what most people are experiencing. And then there's these like few number of people who it's just not that. And it's something really different. I feel like, no, we're, we're just all pretty broken in this area and pretty messed up in this area. And And there's such a need for grace. Yeah. I think there's a tremendous need for grace and I think sometimes the work it takes to get healthy it is just really painful because mm. you have to look someone in the eye and say, it's it's not what it could be or I'm not who I want to be. Well, and, and in such to, a sexualized to, world, it's like that feels like a lot's on the line. Yeah. Right. More than confessing. I mean, none of us are like really great at confessing things we sin or struggle with, but it feels like that one, especially we're sort of sold this. I am a true human to the degree that I'm a, you know, satisfied and high performing sexual person. And it's like to, to admit, Oh, I'm not that is like, Ooh, I don't want to admit that. Yeah. And I think that it's similar to emotional health. Like sexual health is, is really a lifelong project and you never like quote, get good period. The end, hmm. like there's just a ongoing pursuit that requires self-examination and honest communication over time that you never just get emotionally healthy and then you like have a ticket that says, yeah. I have the emotionally healthy badge. Just like you never get sexually healthy and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've achieved that onto the next thing. But there's, because it's a relational category, it requires ongoing attention and and need. And even, you know, Ray Orland Jr. has a marriage conference coming up and it's called Tending Your Garden or something like mm, that. Yeah. Like that, that. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the, in the notes of this. Cause I, I, that's something I'm, Molly and I are going to go to. It was actually scheduled pre pandemic. And so now it's happening later, but I, I hope a ton of people from our church go to that. But that metaphor of you got to plant, you got to water, you got to pull weeds. Yeah. That's just the nature of gardening. Yeah. Pulling weeds doesn't equal you're a bad gardener. It equals you're doing gardening. Yeah. And so trying to just recognize that in our own sexual lives, there's always going to be weed pulling. That doesn't equal, I should be ashamed. That equals, I'm, I'm a person living in a post-Genesis 3 world. But this this whole idea of like the way we handle intimacy, I remember um, I took a class with Steve Tracy on sexual health, and he talked about how the two most frequent complaints that people give, the most frequent complaint from men is frequency. Not often enough. And the most frequent complaint from women is duration. It doesn't, when it does happen, it's not long enough. Frequency and duration. Yeah. And I just remember like this light bulb going off in my head that if you ask a million people about their two most frequent complaints about their prayer lives, probably about half a million would say frequency (laughs) 
and sure. the other half a million would say duration. I don't pray enough, and when I do pray, it's not long enough. And just this idea of communion, interesting. of communion, of connection, of the way that we handle intimacy, uh, of prayer and sexuality being analogous, that we don't pray enough, and when we do pray, it we're ashamed of how long it lasts. And it's similar with sexuality, like we, the frequency and duration complaints. And I think those are both just symbolic of central means of which and ways in which we handle intimacy, intimacy with God and the, who's the person we are closest to. And I was reading Augustine this past week and he has this quote that says, God is closer or more intimate, depending on how you translate it. God is more intimate with me than I am with myself. Mm. And this idea of being in Christ and having Christ in me and the intimacy of that work of the spirit to bring me close to God and, and how the primary way or really the only way that I have fellowship with Jesus is through prayer. The spirit moves my spirit and connects me to the spirit of Christ. And so it's prayer frequency and duration and same ways like the sex is, is the pinnacle or the bullseye of marital connection. It just takes, it requires more and you can just like non-believers can pray you know, you can be emotionally non-intimate and have sex, Yeah, but there's something that different, like when there's an emotional connection, a relational connection, and then a sexual connection, that, that really is the ideal. And when you think about frequency and duration, just there's so much with how we handle intimacy as a general category that I think we bring into the sexual conversation. And that's, that's part of the question of, um, will I be affirmed or not affirmed is, will you know me and will you love me? And saying, I will know people and I will not love everything about them, but I will 100% love them. Because that's our biggest fear, I think, even in sexuality. The ability to move past the naked and ashamed into the naked and unashamed and to risk rejection, to be vulnerable, to be woundable. That's the work, is risking that. Yeah. Well, I remember, I mean, you, you mentioned Ray and uh, Janie Ortland. I remember over a decade ago being at a, an event with a bunch of pastors and wives, and Ray and, and Janie were talking. And at that point, they must have been in their early 60s. I was probably in my late 20s. And they said, I remember she specifically said, you know, great sex is the result of a long marriage. And we're having the best sex of our whole lives, which as a 20-something looking at a 60-something-year-old woman, I was like, okay, this is confusing to me. I believe that you believe that. But, um, But what she was explaining was basically like we've had, we've had a life of growing intimacy together and and that's really what makes sex great you know not in a um not in a hollywood way not in a porn star way but like the true kind of like wow the blending of these lives together these blendings of these people together the mingling of souls i think is what uh matt chandler calls it in his book on marriage it's like that can only happen over a long period of time so i'd be curious maybe as we wrap up um what would your suggestions be for people who go yeah I mean, sex is kind of the symptom where this comes out. It's the tip of the iceberg. But really, maybe what this conversation is uncovering is it's actually an intimacy thing. I struggle in intimate relationships with God, with other people, with with my spouse. That doesn't feel like a kind of thing you just read a book to get out of. Um, You probably need connection with people. But I'm curious what you'd recommend for folks going like, how do I begin to build that? I think a huge aspect of it, and this is one of the things I do now in premarital counseling, is I have people interview all their living relatives, and I make them ask them really awkward questions and say, this is your chance to ask them these questions and blame the questions on me. 
right? Like go, go to your grandma and say, when things were good in your marriage, how did you know when things were bad in your marriage? How did you know when there's a disagreement about money? How did it get handled? Who brought it up? Were you able to talk about it? When there is a disagreement about sex, did you bring it up? Did you not talk about it? When you did talk about it, who started the conversation? Who ended the conversation? And to begin to have these, just trying to be in touch with what we're inheriting and to, to be able to interview living members, recognizing that people are only as healthy as they are. People are always acting as healthy as they are. And so not trying to shame or judge, but just trying to become aware of the relational tradition that we're inheriting from our living relatives. That's really interesting. And so trying to get folks to, that's called genogram is like the, the phrase. There's this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, and he has a chapter on genogram work, which is the generational mapping and trying to just look at the emotional relational dynamics of the past. That's not causal, but it is contributive, recognizing sure. that we're not you know, victims of our parents' parenting, but they really contribute to our formation and trying to recognize the way that our family of origin and being able to receive what's good from it and put off what's bad from it and recognize that we're not part of the family of God and we're being reparented by God the Father and we're being reparented by um, the mothers and fathers of the church and we're refamilying each other. And so part of that begins by trying to press into healthy relationships and to begin to risk and try that curiosity and that vulnerability of allowing yourself to be seen and seeing other people and just doing the work of allowing that connection to happen. I do think that some of what comes up in those situations, a lot of what we see in the church is people who have real sexual trauma, either in their marriage, like marital rape is way more common than like within our church than we would like to believe it is. So just pause there for a second. When you say marital rape, what do you mean? I mean, husbands under threat of physical violence using their wives for their own sexual pleasure. Okay. Yeah. Which is evil and abuse. Yeah. And I would consider it divorceable. Um, maybe sometimes that's in pre-marriage, right? In engagement. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, so like even within existing marriages, there's just sexual trauma and, and it's minimized. Like when you talk to ladies who've done through this, like, oh, well, you know, wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Say, well, tell me more about it. And it's bad. Yeah. But they've rationalized it because facing the reality is so painful to believe, have to come to terms with how you've been sexually traumatized. Or there is just um, sexual trauma from early history. And yeah. again, the statistics around that are really bad. Right. And there's a lot there. And we've got to deal with reality. You know, Christians are reality-oriented people. Mm. They're sober people. And trying to deal with reality, not minimizing it, you know, not saying like, yes, I was raped, but other people raped twice. That's minimization. Yeah. And trying to say, no, rape is terrible, whether it happens once or twice or a thousand times. Like there's, and it shapes you and it affects you and it affects your ability to connect and to process things. And so that dealing with reality, even especially like early childhood sexual trauma or just sexual trauma in general, that's one of those issues that we um, don't do the counseling for in the church we, we shepherd people, we meet with people, we ask them how it's going, but we almost always are going to try to partner with licensed clinicians who are going to work with people to try to uncover and process and work through those things. So that's not an outsourcing, but that's adding an additional partner yeah. to the work of shepherding and counseling. Like I, I had, I'm not trained, I'm not qualified to help people unpack and process that, but I can love people through it while, sure. while a licensed clinician can help them really deal with it in a more um, structured way. Uh, research process. So 
trying to just deal with reality regarding how broken we actually are. Because the reality about sexual sin is we talk about it a lot in the churches and like it's our sexual sin, but for a lot of folks listening, it's not their sexual sin, but it's other people's sexual sin, which has led them to experiencing sexual brokenness. Yeah. Now, I do think 100% of people are sexual sinners, but for most people, not for most people, for a large percentage of people, maybe 40 to 50%, maybe upwards of 60%, other people's sexual sin is the main thing that's contributing to our ongoing sexual brokenness. Hmm. And just trying to recognize that God crushes Pharaoh and he frees people from Egypt. And that's about God freeing his people from other people's sin. And so that is a process that God cares about too. Not just God forgiving us from our sin, but actually God working justice to heal us from the sin of other people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big part of it. And the the last piece of it, you mentioned this in the sermon, is just the general loneliness, the malaise, mm-hmm. the non-connectedness. Uh, some of the that was actually it's funny that that was the part I told Molly afterward. I said, you know, I stole a bunch of stuff from Josh Butler, but like I came up with the friendship one myself, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I felt kind of happy about that because that that was one of those like even as I put the thing together, like it kind of just hit me like you know this has to be this has to be part of the equation of like if we're gonna have healthier relationships, especially between men and women, we got to be able to be friends. Yeah. So anyway, I, Go, going back to that, so many so many guys, I was top, proud of that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad you're proud of that one. Well, I I was frankly happy that you went there, partially because, like I said, a lot of guys first get introduced to pornography because a friend showed them it. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. And just that reality of some of what, you know, C.S. Lewis has this line, I think we talked about in the last podcast, that whenever a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God, right? There's something that whenever a man types in, you know, porn into their search engine, they're looking for some type of connection, and it's not always sexual connection. Sometimes it's just any type of connection. And so some of the guys I've walked with who have experienced a ton of freedom from pornography, it's not been them like, it's not been like something that changes in their marriage or something that changes in their own head. It's like they develop more meaningful friendships with guys hmm. and they do have more guy friends and they have more meaningful just bro connections. And all of a sudden, like, instead of going to their phone and typing in something they shouldn't type in. They go to their phone and they text their friends and say, hey, how'd that interview go today? And so there's like that, instead of searching for the connection in bad ways, you search for the connection in healthy ways because all, all of our desires are good, just send parasites onto them and leads them to being perverted. And so that kind of real meaningful engagement with just good friends yeah, is a big part of that. And I think especially in a culture that really centralizes and in some places idolizes even like the household or the marriage trying to make space for just meaningful friendship connections outside of your spouse is a part of sexual purity, not just sure. Uh, being a healthy person. Yeah. Well, so these last few weeks have been on gender sexuality. Uh, we're going to turn in a different direction in the coming weeks of the series. Uh, I think you pointed out a few weeks ago, it's interesting, all the topics of the, we have in the series some way connect to sex power and money and uh, next week's going to be on the vulnerable so we're going to talk which kind of relates both to power and money to some degree so that's what we'll look at uh, next week and i'm uh it's going to be kind of a shift but it's interesting because i feel like um it's another area where the christian vision is just more compelling than the world can offer even though uh, kind of differently on the surface it might look like the world loves the vulnerable like the church loves the vulnerable but we'll talk more about that next week i guess so that's the plan yeah 
Well, um, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Um, we we love you. I mean, we're uh, we're assuming as as we do this that we're talking to people at our church. If you're not from our church, uh, we like you. But if you're at our church, we we really love you, and uh, we do want to help with this stuff. And we have lots of people on our staff and uh, leaders and lay leaders and people that just care about walking folks through these issues. And so, uh, man, we want to be here for you. Uh, we don't want this to be just kind of uh, here's the content dump for your head. Uh, we want to walk with you in your life. And so if, if there's some areas where you need help and you're willing to kind of be courageous and step in the light and say, hey, I, I could use some help here, we'd sure love the privilege of coming alongside you. So uh, I just I didn't want to finish this episode without mentioning that. I know you feel the same way. I do, except for I don't know if I like people who don't go to our church. <laughs> I appreciate them in theory. I have to meet them to decide if I like them. Okay, okay. Getting nitpicky there. But all right, well, that's it for today. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 